Well, very good. We are continuing our series and our look at the Lord's Prayer. And this is our last time we'll be looking at this particular prayer as the Lord has taught us to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and here's what it says. The disciples came and asked Jesus, Master, teach us to pray. And so Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the reading of God's word. Praise be to God. Well, he heard it in the middle of the night, long before the sun's first rays pierced the eastern horizon. He heard the sound that shattered his soul. It was only a shriek from the barnyard, the cry of an old rooster. But to his ears, it must have sounded like the devil himself mocking him, crowing in triumph. For when Peter heard that noisy old bird, he remembered the words of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will disown me and you will deny me three times. Jesus' prophecy had come true. Three times Peter had denied his master. And the night that had begun with feasting at the Lord's table ended in profanity. Desperate lies salted with the curses of the old sailor that he was. Immediately the rooster crowed and Peter went out into the darkness weeping bitter tears. His savior and his master knew it would come to this. But there was a sense in which it was utterly unnecessary. Peter did not have to deny his master. He could have had the courage to resist the temptation if only he had remembered to pray the way Jesus taught him to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, Jesus had not only told Peter that he would deny him three times, but he also said there's a way out, Peter. In case Peter had forgotten, Jesus reminded him of this petition that very night. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to Peter, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And while Jesus faced his greatest temptation and did so through the battle of prayer, Peter did not utter a prayer. Instead, instead he took a nap. We've been walking through a series on the Lord's Prayer, and we come to the final phrase of the Lord's Prayer this morning. Just a review of the series. We have seen, we have seen so far that all those that have put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ have God as their Father, and that is good news. And we are to come to God and address Him as our Father. And this is the welcome, and this is the introduction, this is the way into prayer. How great the Father, the love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. This is where prayer begins, and Jesus has made that possible for us. Jesus says that prayer is understanding, the heart of prayer is understanding that this relationship of orienting our hearts to this truth, that God is our Father and that we are His children. 
But then this orientation orients the way we see our whole life. And in fact, it orients the, way, the rest of the ways we pray. We, it means if God is our Father, that we, we orient our lives and our priorities around the Father's name, about the glory of his name, the hallowedness of his name. We, we orient this prayer and we orient our lives around his kingdom, around, about doing his will and seeing that happen on this earth. And as we pray this prayer and we orient our lives around this, as we live that life, he being our Father, we also pray understanding that if we're going to be a part of this kingdom advancement in this world, that we are utterly dependent on the Father for our physical provision, for our spiritual provision, our daily provision, our daily renewal with the Father, that we need in constant confession and receiving forgiveness. And indeed, we need daily Renewal with brothers and sisters through constant forgiveness as well. And so we pray, Father, forgive us our debts, even as we forgive those who sinned against us. And so now we come to the last element of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations say it this way. Lead us not into temptation, for we can find it on our own. That's not true. There's no translation that says that, but that's essentially what we think. That is how we feel, right? Lead us not in temptation. I found it just fine all by myself. I love what Mark Twain says about temptation. He says the, he says the best way to deal with temptation is simply to get, give in to it. And that is how many of us have dealt with temptation for most of our lives. I want to ask two questions this morning, two particular questions. This is essentially the same two questions that we have asked for each of the phrases of the Lord's Prayer. Two questions to guide our time this morning. First is, what is Jesus telling us to pray in this prayer? And what is the meaning of this prayer? And then second, we'll ask the question, what gives rise to this prayer? In other words, what compels us to begin praying this prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the first question, what is the meaning of this prayer? The Greek word for lead, and in fact, you may look at this and say that seems very obvious, but it isn't quite as obvious for those who actually study the text. The Greek word for lead means to bring forcefully. It's like when a teacher or a parent, no good teacher, I guess no good parent would really do this, but imagine a parent doing this where they grab kind of a child kind of behind the scruff of their neck and sort of just guide them along with some force. That is the Greek word here for lead, that he's asking that God not lead us in this way into temptation. Now, at first glance, it almost seems as if God is to blame for our temptations in this prayer. God, don't be leading us into temptation, but obviously that can't be right, right? I mean, the Bible clearly teaches that God doesn't tempt anyone. It actually says this in James chapter 1, verses 13 through and 14. It says, God, no one should say that God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But the issue is this becomes more complex when we actually look at the life of Jesus and other places in the scriptures. For example, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, right after Jesus is baptized, and right after the Father has said to Jesus, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and who the Spirit comes and settles upon him, immediately after that, the first thing that the Spirit does is what? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says this, then Jesus was led by, in, in, by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. So how do we make sense of this? Jesus doesn't tempt anybody. God the Father doesn't tempt anybody. And yet 
The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Let's take a minute to understand the occasion and nature of temptation. And there's not a a better place to go than that passage in James chapter 1. If you have a Bible, turn in over there. Hopefully, it'll be on the screen for you as well. Here's what it says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and then dropping down to verses 12 through 15. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, remember that word trials, of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then drop down to verses 12 through 15. It says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, how? By his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. The early part of James chapter 2, 2 through 12 here, through 2 through 15, is talking about trials, right? Count it all joy when you're in the face trials because God is doing something great in there. He's producing in you steadfastness and faithfulness and even joy for your Christian life. The tests are meant to shape us for our good and to reveal what's inside of us. But then in verse 13, it seems like the, the writer here changes the subject, Actually, the reality is he doesn't change the subject. You see, the same Greek word for trial and the same Greek word for test is also the Greek word that is used for temptation. And context helps us understand which way to translate this word. The Greek word is the word parasmos. Now, why would translators have, why would they use or translate this particular word in different ways? Well, it's the context and the intention of the word. In other words, what we see in the way we can understand this word parasmos and in the various ways in which one should translate it is the context and how, who it's referring to. And what we see here in James chapter 1 is this truth and how we understand this word is that God tests, God gives trials, God will even bring you into trials, but God does not tempt When our tests lead us into sin, it is not because God sought to entice you to sin. It's because God puts you in a place of testing to prove and shape your faith, and yet your evil heart used it as an opportunity to sin. Why do we sin, it says there? Not because of what God has done. That's not his intention. But it's because of our evil heart, our evil desires. You must not make the mistake of confusing, and this is important, the cause of your sin, which is your evil desires, and the occasion of your sins, which is the realities and the trials of life. God may bring about to you the occasions of sin, but it's in the same way that when you fail a test in, in grammar school, when you, face, when you fail an algebra test or a calculus test, calculus test, it's not because the test is there to force you to fail. The test is there to show what you learn, to help you reveal what you know, what's going on in your heart and life. It's actually for your good. And God brings us into hard, difficult things for our good. And yet the evil one inciting our evil desires will use the trials and difficulties of life to tempt us. So although God does not tempt us, he does allow us to be tempted in order to test us, in order to prove and reveal 
what is there. So here I would say this. We can actually come to a, a place of a good biblical definition of temptation could be this. Temptation is what takes place when the evil desires of my heart, we'll call that internal temptation, influenced by the lies of the evil one, we'll call that external temptation, are incited by the tests and trials of life, which is the occasion of temptation, in such a way that it gives birth to sin. So let me say that again without the parentheses. Temptation is what takes place when the evil desires of my heart, influenced by the lies of the evil one, are incited by the tests and trials of life in such a way that it gives birth to sin. And to me, the only way to make sense of this petition, to say, God, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is to put these two ideas of the fact that God is going to sometimes lead you into trials and tests, but at the same time, God won't tempt you and incite you to sin in doing so, is to pray this way. To say, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, means this. Lord, when you lead me into a trial, when you lead me into a test, that are occasions for temptations, then please keep me and support me so that we or I don't fall into temptation. Deliver us from the evil desires of our heart and deliver us from the voice of the evil one in the midst of this trial. And so that's what we mean when we pray this prayer. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, it's saying, in the midst of all of the trials and tests of life, these occasions in which it would be easy for me to sin, to be fall into temptation, deliver me from falling into that temptation. Save me from that. Okay, so hopefully we brought some clarity as to specifically what we, an understanding of what this phrase means, of what we are to be praying here, what we are saying we pray this. And let me ask you this. Though, where does this prayer come from? What would compel one to give out a cry? It is the cry of deliverance, isn't it? Deliver me, deliver me. It is actually, there's almost, you can hear, if you were to read it right, a panic, a, a calling, a crying out. In other words, what would give rise to a prayer when we cry out for deliverance from God? The various places where we see people crying out for deliverance is this is the similar kind of idea and the voice that the Israelites used when they were in Egypt and they were calling out in their enslavement and they were calling out for God to deliver them. When the Israelites were, had, because of their sin, God sent them back off into slavery to the Babylonians and they cry out for deliverance in the prophets. That's the word that is in view here. Deliver us. And it's the word that is also in view in the Psalms. As I've gone through this series, and I haven't emphasized this enough, but if you want to learn how to pray the Lord's Prayer, remember the Lord's Prayer is not something that you, you can pray it and that's just fine, but it is not prayer in of itself. This is giving us the structure and the heart of what we are to pray. But if you want to see what it actually looks like, boots on the ground, prayers that ask for God's kingdom to come and ask for daily provision and ask for forgiveness, where's the prayer book of the Bible? It's the Psalms. And if you want to see what it looks like to pray for deliverance, you go to the Psalms. That's why we went through Psalm 18 this morning. It is a whole book, a whole chapter on praying for God's deliverance. In fact, if you were to look at the Psalms, there are 68 references in which deliverance is talked about in the Psalms. Either asking for God's deliverance, remembering God's past deliverance, or looking forward to the promises of God's future deliverance. The psalmists and the prayers there are constantly calling out, constantly remembering the fact that we have a God who delivers. And so what would give rise? 
What would give rise, what would compel you to join the psalmist in a prayer that asks for God's help as you seek to live out daily lives for righteousness and holiness, fleeing from temptation and asking for God's help? What gives rise to this prayer? Well, what is the voice? It's some is this, is recognizing and praying in light of this. Three recognitions that we need to have if we're going to pray this prayer. Three things you've got to come to realize that would cause this prayer to simply well up with you and rise up and join the psalmist, simply crying out and saying, deliver me, God, deliver me. Three recognitions. First is this. This prayer comes first from recognizing that there is evil within us. It comes from recognizing that there is evil within us. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 and verse 40, Jesus says this, In the night in which Jesus betrayed, he went out to the garden of Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, he said, sit here for a, while, for a while while I go and pray. And so Jesus goes off, and he prays, and he faces this great temptation. And then he comes back, verse 40, and he came to the disciples, and he finds them doing what? Sleeping. And here's what he said to Peter. So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray. Why? So that you may not enter into temptation. And why would he enter into temptation? Because the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 and 13 said this, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the New Testament's version of saying like what the Proverbs would have famously been saying in the King James, Pride goeth before the fall. Take heed. Take heed. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What's the truth here? Is that even for people who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that there is indwelling sin and there is a weakness. You pray, deliver me. You pray, lead me, save me from temptation because you realize you are quite capable of falling into temptation. You pray that because you realize you're quite capable of it. In fact, the the truth is, is that growing and maturing Christians more and more comes to terms with this reality in our lives, that we are not above any sin. We're not above it. Last couple of years, my wife and I have had that experience of uh, we're at that stage. We've been married for about 12 years now. And so sadly, we begin to have friends, people who are peers of ours, who have done marriage for a number of years, who were close friends, who had children with us in various places that we lived before. And yet we're now hearing of them leaving each other, being unfaithful to each other, getting divorced. And it was a place of maturity, I think, for our marriage for us to look at each other in, in grief and say, we're sad about what's going on in our friend's marriage, but also look at each other and go, we are not above this. We are not above this. See, it's not just that we don't have great fortitude to resist the devil's temptations. (laughs) No, the problem is that the the temptations are actually, it says, inside of us. They're inside of us, it says in James. We fall prey to temptation, and it is so difficult to resist temptation because temptation is always an inside job. You know, understanding of like when people would rob a bank, what's the easiest way for bank robbers to rob a bank? is to have someone on the inside letting them into the vaults. And that's the truth, is why devil, the evil one is so effective at getting you to sin. It's not because he can force you to sin, but the reality is this, the temptations are effective because the devil has an inside job. He has an inside man on the job. We give in to temptation, and this is the difficult truth, we give in to temptation because we want to. 
Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer is not able to weasel out of this idea of simply blaming our problems on the devil. Remember Mark Twain and Tom Sawyer when he goes to his Aunt Polly and he's done something very, very wicked as he was wont to do. And he says to Aunt Polly, the devil made me do it, Aunt Polly. And what does she say back to him? She says, no, no, the devil didn't make you do it, Tom. The reason you did it is because you wanted to do it. And that's the truth for us. In short, we sin because we want to. We desire to. We are tempted when the true desires of our heart are ignited by some occasion to sin. And the truth of our sinfulness and our depravity says that we have the ability to turn every occasion into temptation. Every occasion. You can, you, we have the ability to turn poverty into temptation. And yet we also have the ability to turn riches into temptation. We have the ability to turn great seasons of joy into temptation, but also turn seasons of sorrow into temptation. Every occasion, all throughout the day, throughout life, is a temptation to sin. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity. He says that you will not recognize truly how sinful you are, true sense of our badness, until we actually begin to seek to resist temptation. When we realize that the problem is not out there, but there's a problem simply going on in here. Because when we seek to resist temptation, we realize that the problem, the problem relies at the core of who we are. Johnny Cash said this, that there is a powerful beast inside, and he is simply quoting from Jeremiah 17, 9, says this, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick, who can understand it? This is the heart. The Christian who is honest with him or herself understands that the only reason the only reason very often, the only reason why you have not committed very particular sins is less a matter of your character and more a matter of opportunity. That you have not been one who's stolen bread because you have all the bread that you need. Mark Twain, once again, he has a lot to say about this. Mark Twain says most morality is simply a lack of opportunity. I love that. That's such a stab at religious people. We need to recognize our weaknesses. We must never think that we cannot be tempted in certain ways. We must never say, oh, that can never happen to me. If we think like that, we have not made much progress on the road of sanctification. So, let me ask you this. What do these kind of prayers look like? The prayers of one who realizes that there's somebody inside the bank vault. What is, lead me not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, that prayer goes like this. Save me from myself. That's how that prayer sounds like. Boots on the ground, that's what that prayer, God, I am so weak, I am so prone. It's not just that I'm bad at resisting the devil's temptation, it's that I want to give in to the temptation. I need your help. Save me from myself. Well, if that isn't bad enough, that we have a heart that still struggles with the presence of indwelling sins, such that we have inclinations towards giving in the temptation, but then we have this sad reality as well, one we don't like to think of very often in a scientific Western environment, but we also have a spiritual evil that is arrayed against us. And this is the second thing, that you'll begin, you'll be compelled, that you'll give rise to this voice of deliver me when you recognize that there is an enemy who is against you, that there is an enemy who is against us. First Peter 5, 6 through 8 says this way, humble yourselves, Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Verse 8, be sober-minded and be watchful. Why? 
Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You, you, you ever watch Discovery Channel? And, and you watch where they had the scene where they're following the gazelles and there's a lion waiting in the wings? I got news for you. You're the gazelle. That's really bad news. And you're not like the strong gazelle in the middle of the pack. You're like the baby gazelle that's like separated from the pack, like eating grass, not knowing what is so close to you. Let me twitterize the point for you. You must pray because your adversary sees you as prey. You gotta pray because your adversary sees you as prey. How does a lion prowl? Let's just look at that to understand what the, what the evil one is after. The lion hides, the lion is patient, the lion looks for weakness, the lion looks for opportunities, the lion has tactics in taking you down. So evil, so much so, the evil one, he, he's waiting as well. He's looking for you to miss steps, for weakness, for opportunities, for you to be separated from the community of God's people, for you to be the gazelle that gets separated from the pack. Let me, the biblical term for this tactic, like a lion, is called schemes. The evil one schemes. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs, schemes. Most Christians are very unaware about the fact that the devil is actively scheming. He has tactics. He is at war against you. And he's got thousands and millennia of years of practice at doing this. You've been around for what, a few years? He's really good at this. And the definition of scheme is simply this. It's a large-scale, systematic plan or arrangement. It is strategizing with the intent. That's what the devil is doing. The devil is setting up snares or traps. The image here is of an enemy patiently waiting to make a surprise attack, like a lion against a gazelle. Traps are set up ahead of time, where we will never suspect that they'll be there. Did you know that the devil has set up traps for you to sin tomorrow? You're not to tomorrow yet, but he is setting up traps for you. And for many of you, he is actually, if you were to look at the story of your life, you would actually begin to see that he's been setting up traps in your life sometimes for years and years in advance. He knows the bent of your story, and he is the evil one who is plotting your destruction. He plots your fall. He is doing everything he can to set you up. And like a lion, it says that he seeks to deceive. Like the lion, the devil seeks to deceive. The lion, what? crouches down. He doesn't want the gazelle to know he's there until he's ready to pounce. And so it is with the evil one. The evil one, Jesus says, is the father of lies. This is primarily the the tactic, the main boots on the ground tactic of the evil one is to deceive. He is called the deceiver. And like a lion on the prowl, he loves to deceive us of his presence. This is what has led the French poet Charles Baudelaire to once say, and this was actually quoted in the movie The Usual Suspects by Kaiser Sose. It goes like this. The devil's cleverest ruse is to make men believe that he doesn't exist. He convinced you that he's not there, and that's where he has you, right where he wants you. The evil one loves particularly to deceive you about who God is and about how God views you. He is the accuser. And he will lie, he will shade the truth, he will even twist the truth to accuse, to crush, and to destroy your joy. Like a lion, 
More bad news. The lion is, like the lion, the devil is relentless. He is hungry. This is the other thing that's so difficult about this, right? Why we, why we should feel our neediness and call out to the Lord's. It's because, you see, if you resist him today, does he just kind of like go, oh, okay, I'll see you. Good job today. You get to go to heaven. I'll leave you alone for the rest of your life. No, he's back tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that. There was a relentlessness. Don't you think on this side of the heaven, the evil forces of this world will let up? I heard the story of one man who came to a pastor and said, I want you to pray for me that I would never be tempted to sin again. And the pastor said, you don't want me to do that. You really want me to pray that you'll be dead? Because that's when the evil one will stop attacking you. So what do, we, what do these prayers sound like? What do these prayers sound like? On a Monday morning when you're in traffic, when you begin to realize that all morning, the behavior of your children, the, the leaving a, a bag at work they have to go back and re-get, the traffic that you're stuck in on the way there, the frustrations of the day, what is this? This leads you to say, God, I need you. The evil one is, is sought to entrap me. Lord, the evil one seeks to entrap me. Save me from his traps. When you get to the end of the day and you realize and you think back on the evil, the terrible things, the way you actually have fallen in the temptation, the ways you've sinned and made mistakes and the way you've failed and you've come up short, and what does the evil one do? He comes to accuse. They say, oh, oh, it's not just that you're a sinner, but you're condemned. How dare you? What good are you? The lies and the deceitful voice of the evil one and say, Lord, I feel accused by the evil one right now. God, come and convince my heart that the blood of Jesus is enough, that he has washed me clean, that I stand washed before God the Father. Convince me that. Lord, speak more loudly right now. I need you to speak more loudly than the voice of the deceiver. This is what those kind of prayers, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, sound like. So that is the bad news, beloved. That the temptation, the enemy, the evil is inside of you and it's surrounding you. But there is an enemy, there is an enemy who seeks to kill and destroy. But not only that, but you have a Benedict Arnold living in your heart. But here's the good news. And the last thing you need to realize, Jesus came to make war against sin, both in us and all the evil that surrounds us. And so this prayer, third and finally, flows from recognizing that there is a victorious king who is for us was for us do you see the importance of this the victory there's a victory here that jesus wins for us against temptation we've actually already had allusions in two passages that we looked to at the very beginning this morning of the victory that jesus has over temptation there were jesus is victorious on our behalf against temptation and matthew chapter 4 and in luke chapter 4 we have the account of the spirit leading jesus into the wilderness in order to what in order to be tempted And the Spirit led Jesus into the arena where temptation would take place. God the Father had one intention for Jesus, though. He wanted him to pass a test, to perfectly live a righteous life on our behalf so that he might give us his righteousness one day. But the evil one came to tempt Jesus to derail Jesus, the Son of God, to derail his salvific work in this world. Satan wants to prevent Jesus from being a sinless Savior. God the Father wants to prepare Jesus to be the sinless Savior who perfectly defeats sin and overcomes temptation. 
There's a collision, a war that is going on in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. But there's something enormously significant. It is connecting to the larger story of the whole Bible that is being played out for us in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And it's this. If you were to look at Luke chapter 3 at the very end, it gives the whole genealogy of Jesus. And it works from Jesus all the way back to the beginning of mankind. And so, of course, it ends with Adam. But then it gives Adam this distinction. Adam, the son of God. Now, what it's referring to in the genealogy is not that Adam is the son of God in a divine way, but in a unique way from you and I. He was uniquely and directly created by God as the first man. Now, Adam is a son. And what is the story of Adam? That he is in a garden, and he is tempted in that garden to fall, to listen to the voice of the deceiver, and to fall into temptation. But what does Jesus do? Jesus in the story of the wilderness is he goes out and he fasts for 40 days. And while Adam, the first Adam, has everything he could possibly want or need in this world, he is in a flourishing garden. And yet Jesus, the second Adam, comes and he is in a place of starvation. He's not eaten for 40 days. He's in the wilderness, in the desert. And that's when the evil one comes to him. When he's physically weak. And yet Jesus passes the test in, in Matthew 4. He resists the temptation of the evil one. Showing that he is the true and better son of God that we need. Adam fails as a son of God. We need a better son of God. That's what Jesus comes to be. To overcome temptation. But the, the, the allusions to scriptural history don't end there. You see, Jesus is not just simply the, the second Adam. He's also the true and better Israel. Who, who else wanders in the wilderness for a really long time? Israel does. And in fact, God calls Israel. He names Israel his son. He says, Israel, you are my son, you are my child. So Israel as a nation is called God's son, and they're tested in the wilderness. God takes them out, and do they pass the test? No, as soon as God provides them bread and water and provision and salvation from the Egyptians, they go out into the wilderness, and they begin to make a God for themselves, an idol of worship. And here is what Jesus shows. He says, not, am I, not only am I this true and better Adam, who resi- I resist temptation where Adam fails, but where Israel fell into temptation, I I will be victorious. And so he is in the desert for 40 days. He passes the test. But at the end of the account of the account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, in Luke chapter 4, it tells us something about where Jesus is going to face the greatest battle against temptation. In Luke 4, verse 13, it says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until a more opportune time. Now, when was that more opportune time? It's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus faces the final test in the garden, when he takes a cup and he cries out before the Father, take this cup of wrath from me. Or what is Jesus looking at? He is facing a tree of wrath, not a tree of life, not a tree of knowledge, but a tree of wrath. And yet he does the Father's will, resisting the temptation of the evil one. And Jesus passes the test. With blood and sweat and tears. So Paul says, you have not resisted temptation to the point of shedding blood. Well, Jesus did resist temptation to the point of shedding blood. He becomes so sweating and so profusely and the pressure is so great that his capillaries burst and he has blood that he is sweating. And yet he does this on our behalf. Why? So that he as the sinless savior who resists temptation, who defeats the evil one's attacks, may actually go to the cross and atone for our sins, but then also give you the sinless life. Put that on your record. And so this is why it says this. 
What Jesus came to do is to defeat the evil one, to defeat sin, defeat death. And so it says this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And therefore the evil one tempts us, but Jesus gives us the power to resist temptation. Jesus is the one who defeats temptation on our behalf. Where you and I fail every day, every hour, every moment to resist temptation, Jesus does it perfectly. Now there are two implications for this that I want to close with. That are important for your prayer life. See, the good news does not stop there simply that Jesus atoned for your sins and gave you his righteousness, but because Jesus won the victory over temptation and sin and death, he takes up a couple roles. One is this. He is a priest who pleads. It says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sins. Which means this, that when you come to him with your temptations and your calls and cries for deliverance, Jesus is empathetic. He knows the weight and the difficulty of what you face. He understands our temptations. He's understand what we mean when we pray, lead us not into temptation. He understands the panic that we experience when we cry out, deliver us. You see, not only does he understand our prayer, but he actually repeats it on our behalf. For even now, we sang it earlier, even now he stands before the Father interceding for us to be preserved from temptation. So you might say, what, if I, what about the times in which I fail, in which I don't resist temptation? What about the times in which I fall into temptation? Where is Jesus there? You see, what, well, Jesus is there, interceding for you even there. That the evil one would not be able to steal your joy, even when you've fallen and you've sinned. What does he do? The evil one tries to accuse and deceive us, and yet what does Jesus do as the perfect high priest on our behalf? He intercedes for us, and he defends us by his own record, so that even when you fail like, to resist temptation, you can still know this, your joy doesn't have to be stripped. Your life is not over, because Jesus has paid for those sins. When Satan charges that we are sinners, Jesus stands before the throne, he says, look at my hands, I've paid for those sins. And so you can know this. Let me show you this as well. Jesus also prays for us, that we would persevere even in the face of temptation. You see, we actually see it in a place where someone failed temptation, and yet Jesus play, prayed about the long game. Here's what Jesus says about Peter. Peter fails to pray, and he falls into temptation, but you know, Jesus prepared for this as well. He doesn't just simply give Peter bad news. He doesn't simply say, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me. You should pray about this. Oh, you didn't pray about this. You denied me. No else, what does he do? Luke chapter 22, verse 32, it says this, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that you would strengthen your brothers. You see what Jesus says there? Jesus did not say, I have prayed for you so that you will never fail, Peter. What does he say? Peter, I have prayed for you so that your faith will not fail. I have prayed for you so that even in the day in and day out basis in which you do fail in various moments, that you will not make a shipwreck ultimately of your faith because I've prayed for you. That the temptation of the evil one will not lead to your ultimate destruction. Oh yes, there will be moments of severe pain, but I will restore you. And you will actually come out and you will be stronger and you will lead others because you've experienced my grace. And I will cause you to stand firm 
This priest is our help against temptation. Jesus, our priest. But even when we reject him and fall into temptation, he will not allow the lies, the accusing lies of the evil one to crush us. And we will not allow the accusing voice of the evil one to be the final voice. His voice, his voice is louder. But the other thing we want, I want you to see is this. Not only have we been given in this a priest who pleads for us, but in Jesus' victory, in the king's victory, we have a power to defeat the enemy. A power to defeat the enemy. One of the last things that Jesus prayed, and we're going to look at this in a couple weeks, because we're going to look at the high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus says this, protect them from the evil one, Father. And what we see now is just as the church preaches and lives the gospel, God is answering that prayer. Even as Christians face hardship and opposition and persecution and martyrdom, God is still building his church, and the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. The evil one tries to confront the whole church, but Jesus is our rock and our fortress. He is the power. Even when the evil one tries to tempt us, Jesus gives us the power to resist temptation. He showed us how to do it in the wilderness by the power of the word and by the spirit so that it says this in James chapter 4, 7, resist the devil and what will happen? He will flee from you. You say, but what about my weaknesses? He is powerful for you. God is powerful for you in your weakness. This is why you prayed this prayer. God, I am weak, but you are so powerful. And so I plead this prayer. Lead me not in temptation, but deliver me from evil by your power at work within me. You know, he promises this. More, more times in the New Testament than you may realize. 2 Timothy 4.18, it says this, The Lord will rescue you from every evil deed and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom to be with him forever and ever. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 1 Corinthians 10.13, this one you probably know. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is present to deliver you in the moment of temptation. Remember that. Because the lie of the evil one is this. You're by yourself. When you're by yourself and your wife leaves the house and it's just you and a computer, the lie is you're dead. The devil's like, I got you right where I want you. And the truth of the matter is this. The truth of the gospel, though, is that Jesus says, no, 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 no. I have made a way for you. I've given you a community. I've given you my spirit. I have filled you with my power. You, you can resist the temptation of the evil one. Why? Why can you resist? John, 1 John 4, 4 gives us this wonderful promise. Little children, I love this. The context is you are little children, weak and wounded. To, to the power of the enemy, you're just this little small gazelle a child. And yet, what does it say? You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You're a little child, but the power of Jesus Christ resides in you. And the beautiful truth is this, is because of Jesus' defeat of death and sin and temptation, soon the warfare will be over and Satan will no longer be able to trouble you. 
You see, our commander, our captain, will call us out of the battlefield and into the place of the victory march, where it says this in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. Your feet. That is the promise of Christ, our captain, of our king, who has won the victory for us. And yet we one day will be able to stand with him on the throat of the evil one and say, I have won the victory through Christ Jesus. So what kind of prayers does this truth give rise to? A prayer of hopefulness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil is a prayer of hope because we have one who will deliver us. Lord, deliver me. And he has and he will. Promise claiming prayers. That's what kind of prayers these are. Lead us out in temptation, deliver us from evil is a claiming of the promises of God. God, you said that you will not let me be tempted beyond what I can handle. So show up for me now. You said you will provide a way of escape. Where's the way of escape? Reveal it to me in this moment. Lord, you've given me the Holy Spirit. I don't have to listen to the lies of the evil one. I, I am a child, but I am not weak in the power of the Holy Spirit. These are the promises that you're bringing before the Lord. Or perhaps... Perhaps, and we'll close with this, perhaps you might find the words for your day in and day out prayers of lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil from one of the great hymns. You know, there's a hymn about this. It started by a bunch of people, it was written to a tune that was sung by those who were giving in the temptation. It was a bar tune, but the lines are awesome. See, the lines of mighty fortress, you can turn into a prayer. You can say this, God, you're a mighty fortress. You're a bulwark. What does Zach say? It's not a small fort. It's kind of a big fort. You're a bulwark, never failing. God, you are a helper. Amid the ills and the weakness of this world, you are a helper. God, the evil one is so great, and I feel so weak, but Lord, I will not fear because you have promised to triumph through me. God, I look forward to the day when I will be relieved of all temptation, and the evil one's attacks will be gone forever. Hasten that day, God. I long for that day. Until then, God, I trust the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that are mine. I trust the power that you're going to deliver me. You've given me the power to resist. And God, I rest in hope in the fact that your kingdom is coming and that your reign is forever and ever and you have crushed the serpent's head. That's what we get to pray. And that's what it means to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I hope it wells up in you because you're in a war and you need Christ your captain every day every hour, every moment. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, we need this. Lord, I I pray that you would open our eyes to the reality of the warfare that we are in. Lord, I, I, I fear that we don't pray this prayer is because we're simply like Mark Twain, we just give in to temptation. It's just easier that way. And we can feel better that way. But Lord, I pray that you would give us a fighter's mentality. That you would give us spunk as Christians. That we would begin to fight. <laughs> and maybe then, Lord, we would finally, what, is, what does Mike Tyson say? Everybody thinks they're great until they get in the ring and they take a punch. And so, Lord, maybe getting into the, ev- the ring with the evil one and taking a punch will finally begin to pray prayers like, deliver us, Lord. 
I got nothing, Lord. So draw us into the ring, God, where we can realize our weakness and we can sense the power and the strength of our enemy. But Lord, if, if you do that, would you also convince us by the power of your Holy Spirit that you are our victor, that you are the king who reigns? So Lord, drive us to you in this. Drive us to our daily and hourly crying out to you, asking for your help. And in so doing, would you build our faith? Would you strengthen us for endurance? And would you give us greater joy for the long path home? We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen.